Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming out on a beautiful fall night. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, one of the pastors here at St. Philip the Deacon. And on behalf of this congregation in Mount Olivet Lutheran Church of Plymouth and all of our sponsors, it is my privilege and pl pleasure to welcome you tonight to the start of the 13th annual season of the Faith and Life Lecture Series. Uh, delighted you're here. I've asked, uh, every, every year I, I ask the question, how many of you have not been to one of these events before? If you could just raise your hand. <clears throat> Wonderful. Special welcome to each of you. We're glad you're here. Um, a gentleman just came up, this is not a joke, uh, before we began, and told me that, and Bill, where did you go now? Not this Bill, a different one. Um, is it a black car? There, there's a black Jaguar convertible. <laughs> <clears throat> and, and your lights are on. <clears throat> so, uh, just FYI. Um, so over 13 years, our, our goal has been to cast a broad net in terms of uh, speakers and the topics they talk about. Each of them is simply asked to talk about how Christian faith connects to some particular topic. In all of that time, we have never had a speaker talk about tonight's topic, and I'm delighted uh, that we have our speaker to talk about it. He is someone, if you read the bio, who has served at the highest level of um, the business world, of the government world, and now in the academy at Harvard. Uh, you can read about all of that in his bio, but one of the things he told me as we were visiting just before tonight uh, that has been near and dear to his heart, which I think he will say something about, is that for 32 years he has been part of a faith-based couples group that meets, was it weekly? Once a month. Once a month for that one, and then for 40 years he has been part of a small group of men that meets weekly. Week. Uh, so, again, he'll say more about that. I'm thrilled all of you are here. I'm delighted that our speaker is here. Will you help me welcome Mr. Bill George? Well, I am thrilled to be here. Thank you very much, Pastor Tim, for that welcome. And uh, thank you all for coming tonight. It's a great opportunity for me to be with you and to give a faith talk, which working in a secular institution, I don't always have that opportunity. So in fact, sometimes after my classes, people, because I tell everyone I'm a Christian, but they say, well, is this whole thing based on faith? And well, I say, if you want to read it that way, you can, meaning referring to the book, uh, Discover Your True North. But uh, I'm very honored to have the chance to kick off your 13th season, 61st speaker, Pastor Tim tells me. And uh, what a great thing you've created here and it's a privilege to be a part of it. And uh, also I want to acknowledge uh, Lori Olson from Opportunity International, who's been one of your partners here, and, uh, uh, and they've done some tremendous work. Those who aren't familiar with their work, they do a great work around the world, and mostly in emerging countries, helping mostly women, not entirely, uh, found their own companies with small microloans. It's just a fantastic program. So, and I know many of you work in, in ways that you give back a lot. So uh, tonight, I'd like to talk about faith and leadership, discover your true north, and I'll try to explain how those two things are linked together. Let me just say that it's my view that we are all called to lead, each and every one of us. We're born with gifts, uh, that we didn't create our own gifts, they come from our creator, and each of us has uh, both an obligation and an opportunity to lead in our own unique way using our unique gifts. And I can say today, perhaps more than any time in my lifetime, uh, the world is crying out for your leadership. 
You don't have to lead the whole world. You can't eliminate poverty in the world. You probably can't eliminate disease. But you can contribute in your own way to making a difference through your leadership, through your personage, through what you do and the influence you have on other people. And so that's what I'd like to talk about. Uh, ever since I was a very young boy, and I'm trying, I was trying to put the year whether I was 10 or 12, I've been inspired by a passage from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 6, uh, verses 14 and 15, when Jesus is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a bushel basket but on a stand, so it gives light for all the world to see and all in the house. Let your light so shine before people that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So I'd just like to light this candle. It's symbolic of your being the light of the world, each and every one of you. And I want you to think throughout, how are you using your gifts? Again, you didn't create your gifts, but how are you using your gifts And what influence are they having on other people? I would suggest to you that they have far greater influence than you ever know on many, many people. Uh, So are you letting your light shine? Are you letting it shine before others? Are you hiding in under that proverbial bushel and not letting others see it? Uh, Here in Minnesota, we call that humility. Uh, Actually, I don't think that is humility. I think it's being yourself and letting your light shine is what we're all called to be, and to use our unique gifts that we've been given. You know the story of the parable of the talents, where Jesus punishes the servant who buried his talents. And so I think we're given talents, and we're called on to use those talents to God's glory. And I think a key part of that is discovering our true north. And so I'd ask you, have you discovered your true north? At this point, some of you are probably wondering, well, what is true north? Your true north is your most deeply held beliefs, the values that you hold most dear, and the principles you live your life by. And I think if I asked each of you to write that down, you could come very close in a short period of time of writing down what is your true north, your beliefs, your values, and your principles. But it's so easy in this difficult world we live in to get pulled off course. I've been pulled off course in my life I dare say probably you have at one point in time in your life been pulled off course. How do you stay true to your true north? And how do you discover your true north? I think the only way you do is to use your gifts in the world, to rub up against the world, if you will, and to find what really matters, to interact and engage with people. And that's where you have the opportunity to influence, to lead, and to use your gifts every day, whether it's at work, in your family, in your communities, in the organizations you're a part of, or even in your private spiritual life. I think it's uh, important we do that. One of my uh, dear friends and somebody I admire greatly is the founder of an organization called Sojourners, a faith-based organization in Washington, D.C. that was founded by Jim Wallace, and I'll talk more about. But Jim asked the question, how does your faith hit the street? In other words, it's not just about having faith, it's taking it into the world and going into challenging situations and using your faith. Uh, And that's the only way we can impact the world around us. And I think we learn through every one of those interactions. We learn about other people. Sometimes we make assumptions about people we've never even met. We meet them, or maybe we've met them once or twice. We don't really know until we engage with the world. And that's how we find out how to use our gifts and how we can have the greatest impact. So the question is, how should we lead? How do we lead 
as leaders. I think it starts with being a servant leader. Back in 1966, when I was a, a young student at Harvard Business School, I was running something called the Musser Seminars, funded by John Musser from St. Paul. My, I didn't even know John Musser at that time. He's now deceased, a, a great man. But he had funded my dean, who was associate dean, and my mentor, Leslie Rollins, asked me to head up this seminar. And it was one we brought together Harvard Business School students, students from the Harvard Divinity School, and from the Episcopal Theological Seminary. And so we would have regular sessions. We have people come in. Well, uh, at one point, then Robert Greenleaf, who is the founder of Servant Leadership, came into our session and uh, presented his ideas on servant leadership. He was still at AT&T at the time, and he's had an enormous impact on me and on many people. So I would just like to read to you what he says about servant leadership, because I want you to think about, are you a servant leader? The servant leader is servant first. One wants to serve first, then one aspires to lead. This is sharply different from one who is a leader first, perhaps because of a need to assuage an unusual power drive or to acquire material possessions. A servant leader focuses primarily on the growth and well-being of people and the communities to which they belong. The servant leader shares power, puts the needs of others first, and helps you develop and perform as highly as possible. Are you a servant leader? Do you serve others through your leadership? Uh, I think it's uh, something that's meant a lot to me over the years. Uh, and I call it the journey from I to we. I remember I was with Thich Nhat Hanh, the famous Buddhist monk in San Francisco many, many years ago. And he said, the longest journey you'll ever take in your life is the 18 inches from your head to your heart. Too, all too often these days, it's easy to cut ourselves off of the neck and remain in our heads and not come to our hearts. And I think all great leaders have the capacity to integrate their head and their heart. I don't think one, as my colleague Michael Porter said at Harvard Business School, you can't really consider yourself a great leader unless you're a good human being. And I think that's really true. Uh, I think of the story of Nelson Mandela and how he was an angry young man and he was put in prison for 27 years for a crime he didn't commit, a political crime, if you will, and uh, forced to hard labor and everything else. And he came out of there and you would have thought that he would have wanted to win for his people, for the, the black South Africans, and get some revenge on those who put him in jail. Instead, he was able to go and forgive the judge who had condemned him in the trial. He was able to forgive his jailers, and he was able, because he saw beyond that, it was about, not about I, it was not about him being president, it was about the we of bringing all South Africans together as one nation. I think we could learn a few things about that in our own country, about the importance to coming together. And so Nelson Mandela has been one of my role models because of his ability to lead as a we leader. And I think that's what all leadership today should be. It's not always the case, but I think it's really important. Another person. Now, what we found, we talked to, we've interviewed in depth, 75 minutes, 170 leaders, about 125 back in 2005 and six, and another 47 more recently, before I wrote the book, Discovery of True North, that you're all going to receive tonight. Uh, and one of the people we talked to is a woman here from Minneapolis, who I met many, many years ago. Her name is Retha Clark King. Retha was born in Georgia, in the state of Georgia, in central Georgia. And uh, she was impoverished. Her father left home when she was six. 
Her mother worked as a maid, and Retha said that she found it was uh, very, very sad that she had to be pulled out of school and work in the cotton fields for $3 a day to help her mother pay the bills because her mother couldn't otherwise pay the bill. Retha is a brilliant woman that uh, said that her church was her haven, the thing that kept her going amidst all the discrimination against uh, African Americans in central Georgia or in the state of Georgia. And uh, a mentor encouraged her to go to Clark College, and eventually she found her way to the University of Chicago. Uh, She's the first uh, African-American woman to get a Ph.D. in physical chemistry from the University of Chicago. And I can assure you, in those days, this was not about affirmative action, but about the gifts that she had. And she's a remarkable woman who then went on to come here and be president of Metropolitan State University, president of the General Mills Foundation, and then she uh, devoted, after she retired from General Mills, she devoted herself a board career. I served with her on the board of Exxon. Uh, she serves on the board of Wells Fargo. She was recently honored as the top corporate director of the year and now is chairman, uh, chairperson of the National Association for Corporate Directors. So just think about that life story of where she came from. She came from the cotton fields of Georgia, and now she's being honored as the number one corporate director of the year. Think about that remarkable story. And the thing about Aretha, she never forgot her roots. She never forgot where she came from. She never lost sight of who she was and who she is. And she carries that on every day. And she says, my mission is to give people opportunities to open the doors. And so I asked her, I said, Aretha, have you been discriminated against? She said, of course. She said, you know, but you just have to walk past that and ignore it because you have a greater calling to make a difference in the world. And I found her story a very inspiring story, but also illustrative of your life story. So what is your life story? What is, what is essential in your life, whether it's your early years, your mid-years, today's years, that really has been important in influencing the person you are today? And do you have congruence with your life story? Are you able to stay true to it? Because I think we all have a life story. And we found in all of our research of these 170 people that we interviewed, that that was the most defining factor. It wasn't about whether they were born brilliant or whether they were, uh, had certain characteristics. It really came out of could they be true to who they were. So how is it for you? Are you able to be true to who you are? And if you find yourself being pulled away from that by some, a seduction of money, fame, or power, or pressure, are you able to come back to your true north, to being that person you are? And I think that's really the essence of what we learn of where leadership starts. You know, many of us go through difficult times. I call them crucibles. I actually got that from my mentor, Warren Bennis, who was known as the father of leadership. But we go through difficult times in our life, and no one gets through life without having a difficult time. Some, we never try to, we never, always tell people, don't compare your crucible with somebody else's. It's what's important to you. It could have been as simple as being uh, dropped by a girlfriend in the seventh grade or not being part of the right social group, or it could have been an illness you had as a child. It could have been difficult parents and problems with their parents. But we all have crucibles. A crucible is that time when you get closest to the marrow of life, to what's really important. And I think that's when you find out what you're made of. It's not when you're most successful, when you feel like you're on top of the world, but when you get pulled right to the marrow of life and you say, What's it all about? What's it all about for me? What's my life all about? And what do I believe about this life? What do I believe in? 
Whom do I believe in? And what's important? And it's only in that crucible life, I think we could call to that. All too often when things are going well, uh, we can start to think we're better than we are, we're more capable than we are. But it's when things don't go our way, we get called to figure out what's most important. My close friend Marilyn, Marilyn Carlson Nelson tells a story that she was uh, at home one day and uh, her eldest daughter was a freshman at Smith. And she got a call that fall about two, two, two months after her daughter Juliet entered Smith. And she was told that her daughter had been killed the night before in an automobile crash while she was asleep in the back seat coming back from Dartmouth College. And she said she was devastated because she was very, very close to her daughter and she just could not understand how a 19-year-old could be disappoint, uh, disappear from the world. Mar- Marilyn has a very deep face. She went to Hennepin Methodist for many, many years, still does. And yet she said she lost her faith because of that because she asked God, did he have any answers? And she got no answers. Well, she eventually came back to that. She said, my husband, Glenn, who, by the way, was vice chairman of Medtronic for many years, uh, and I decided that we would use every minute that our daughter, Julia, didn't have to try to make life better for other people. And Marilyn carried that out throughout her life. Uh, she uh, had a father who was a pretty tough guy, and he wouldn't let her come into the company. In fact, he fired her at one point in time to go home and raise children. And when she was 46 or 47, she went back to the Carlson Companies. And it was interesting how she changed that organization of 175,000 people from what was widely known as a sweatshop to bring her spirit of empowering people. And she took that to every cook who worked in one of their restaurants, every housekeeper who worked in one of their hotels, everyone who worked in their marketing area and the travel agencies, that spirit of empowerment. And uh, I, I hold her up as a real role model for an empowering leader. But it all came out of that early crucible she had. She's had other tough times in her life, but uh, this one really never left her. And she's wanted to carry that on. She's very open in telling the story. She's not, uh, not hesitant to tell you the story, but how much this has impacted her life. So how has your crucible impacted your life? Does it, is it something that you feel angry about? Do you feel like you don't want to talk about it? Or do you find the power in it? Not long after my first earlier book, True North, came out in 2007, came out in February, about this time of year, in October, I got a letter from a man I'd never met before named Pedro Algorta. And Pedro is an Argentinian, and he told me this story. He was originally Uruguayan. He was living in, excuse me, he was living in Argentina, of how 35 years before he had been flying uh, with his Uruguayan rugby team across the Andes Mountains. And his plane went down, and they crashed in the mountains. And 64 people survived the crash, or about 120 on the plane. It was a horrendous crash. And uh, he spent 70 days in the mountains, uh, in the cold, with no proper clothing, because they were going from one warm climate to another, but it wasn't warm in the mountains. Uh, no food, no water for 70 days until they were finally rescued. In fact, they'd given up the rescue, and two of their colleagues went over the mountains, and Pedro had to keep everyone together. And he came to my classroom. It was a very dramatic moment when he told the story. He showed pictures of what it was like. He was a 19-year-old boy at the time. And he said that for 35 years, he had not talked about this experience. And when he read the book, all of a sudden it came, came up to the surface. He couldn't keep it down anymore. He'd gone to Stanford Business School for two years, 
and never mentioned it to one, any single person. In fact, the only person he'd ever told about his experience uh, was his wife. Now, you've probably heard this story. It was documented by Pierce Paul Reed in the book Alive. There's a movie that many of you may have seen. It's a very dramatic movie. It's not over-dramatized, but to hear him tell the story, he just published his own book on it. But to hear him tell the story is very dramatic. But he, what he said to the students in my class, well, I thought was particularly interesting. I'm going to share it with you. He was talking about crucibles. He was saying there's really three ways you can deal with your crucibles. The first way is you can live an angry life looking backward. Okay, and being angry that you were a victim, you grew up in poverty, you had health problems as a youth, your parents got divorced, you didn't ever feel like your father, he worked all the time, he didn't really love you, or whatever it is, you lost a child like Marilyn, but you can live your life as a victim. Obviously, he didn't recommend that. The second one is you can stuff it. You can just say, I'll stay in my head, I'm not going to think about that, I'm not going to deal with matters of the heart, I'm not going to deal with my emotions, I'm just going to shut down that side of me because I don't want to take the risk of that happening again. And uh, that's what Pedro had done. By the way, he's totally changed his life since this happened. He's now out talking and encouraging people to take the third course. In the third course, he tells the story of how the pearl is created. He says there's an oyster shell that is on the shore. And it's, the waves are grating against that shell. And it's grating, and the waves just keep coming in incessantly, and they never stop. On and on and on. And it's very, very irritating. That sand rubs against the oyster shell. It is very, very irritating. So it forms something called nacre, which is mother of pearl. It's not the pearl, but inside that nacre is the pearl. Okay? And so I want to ask you, where's the pearl in your life? Can you find in your crucible, your challenging time, that pearl that makes up who you are, that makes you unique, that is really a gift? You think about the time as a difficult time, but maybe deep down inside, that's a gift you've been given. It's a time when you found out what was really important in your life. Maybe it brought you back to your true north. Maybe it brought you back to what you really believe, that crucible, that difficult time. So rather than looking at yourself as someone, a victim, it's something you got through. People have gone through severe health problems. Uh, there's one young man, I entered, I, the last person I added to the book, a young man named Taylor Carroll, who was a junior at Harvard College, and I happened to be at a dinner with some fellows. And I was telling him my son was a heart surgeon, and Taylor said, oh, I'm a survivor. He said, really? And he said, yeah, I was told at age 11 I had terminal cancer. I had two weeks to live. Can you imagine taking your son or daughter at two weeks, excuse me, at age 11 and telling him that they have two weeks to live? His parents wouldn't accept that, and he fought his way through four horrendous years. And he's come out of it now. He's cured, and he went through bone marrow transplants, graft versus host disease, everything you can imagine. Uh, and he's now using his gifts. He's a singer, and he's using his gifts to go around. He's a national spokesperson for the National Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and he's inspiring other people. He's raised $10 million for the society, helping them help other people uh, overcome this horrendous disease. So where's the pearl in your life? What is that pearl that's made a difference for you? Uh, and is it, is it in your crucible? Is it in your greatest successes? I just want to challenge you to think about what's really important in your life. And can you find that crucible like Pedro did or like Marilyn Nelson did or like Taylor Carroll did? Uh, uh, so let me shift now to ask, as a leader, what's the purpose of your leadership? Because I think it's really important that we all have 
a clear, some clarity of purpose for our leadership. Because if you don't have clarity of purpose, why would people want to follow you? Why would they even want to work with you if it's all about you? But do you have a purpose for your leadership? Do you have a greater purpose? Like Marilyn Nelson was to help people lead better life, okay? Or like Taylor Carroll's was, to help people overcome lymphoma and leukemia and to uh, raise money to overcome that dreaded disease. One of the people I've gotten to know the last five years is a man named Ken Frazier. And so I said, Ken, can I interview for this book? And uh, he's now chairman CEO of Merck. He's a very, very successful human being. He said, sure. And so then he started telling me a story. Ken is 58 years old. He is the grandson of a slave. So you can do the math and you can figure out uh, how old his father was. And uh, his grandfather was living in South Carolina. And he said, the most important person in my life has been my father. His father got him out of South Carolina. And we moved to the streets of Philadelphia and probably the most impoverished area on 3rd Street, 3rd or 4th Street of inner city Philadelphia, where the gangs are, where the drugs are, where all the violence and crime is. And uh, he said he, he was, his father called him in when he was 12 to tell him his mother had died that day. And he said, today is a good day because your mother's at peace. And Ken says that is a person of faith. And he said, my father, who never went beyond a position of janitor, he said he never had any formal education, never went beyond the first grade. Uh, he said he was the most important person in my life, and he read two newspapers a day. He said he spoke the king's English. I think you know what I mean by that. And uh, he said he had a huge impact. And his father used to say to him, Ken, what are you doing to carry on this narrative that was started by your grandfather? Now think about it. What are you doing to carry on this narrative? Your grandfather, Ken, got me out of South Carolina. I gave you a chance to go to first Penn State, then to Harvard Law School, and he became a very successful lawyer and eventually is now running company, but he's never forgotten how important those lessons were from his father and why that had such a great impact on him. And today, Ken has a very clear purpose. Now he's CEO Merck. He's trying to, in fact, I talked to him one day after he was getting beaten up by the stock market, and he had been there, uh, just made an announcement that they're never going to spend less than $8 billion a year on research. When some of his competitors were cutting back significantly, he said, no, that's what we're going to do, because science is what matters in this field, and we're going to restore Merck science, and we're going to solve diseases that maybe will help somebody 10, 20, maybe 50 years from today, long after I'm gone, will have an impact. So Ken has great clarity for his purpose. So what's the purpose of your leadership? And are you clear about what it is? Because, again, I think that's what we're all called to do. But it takes, to find our purpose, I think, takes a great deal of discernment, of thinking about what's really important. What am I called to do? What am I called to be? And, uh, and I, I want to ask each of you to think about that question tonight and so how are you letting your light shine by understanding the purpose of your leadership? Pastor Tim said, uh, talked about my support teams, but I would say this. When you go through difficult times, you may be in good times now. Who's going to be there to support you? Who's, that, who's on your support team that will be there to support you through thick and thin? I think uh, it's really important. Well, things are good. We build a support team around us to have people we know will be there. Remember Jamie Diamond told the story. He's now the chairman of a, 
Morgan, uh, J.P. Morgan, and he, st- he told me the story. I was moderating a panel of two people he was on. And he said, you know, I got fired by my mentor at 22 years at Citigroup. And he said the significant thing, he said, before that happened, I was asked to do everything. Everyone wanted to have lunch or breakfast or dinner. I got invited to all these gala dinners. I was getting all these awards. He said, as soon as I got fired, the phone shut down. He said, the only people who were there for me were my high school friends and my college friends, you know, and my family. We had to move to Chicago. We are from the East Coast. Uh, we'd never lived there. And he said, I got a lot closer to my family as a result of that experience. So who's on your support team? I've been very fortunate to have uh, a very strong support team, and it's been so much to me in difficult times. It starts for me with my wife, Penny, who's been uh, the best uh, supporter, guide, counselor, uh, challenger, critic, all those things wrapped into one that I could ever possibly hope for. Uh, and Penny uh, uh, and and it's just been wonderful at challenging me, but also when I'm down, she picks me up and gives me that encouragement. So I, do you have one person in your life, you would say, whether it's your spouse, your significant other, your best friend, your mentor, uh, or someone in your life, your pastor, someone you can talk to and share everything in your life with. There's nothing you hold back. So the, the loneliness is taken away by having one person. You can't share everything with everyone, but you can share everything with one person. And uh, I've been blessed with many good mentors. My mentors have shifted over the years as my work has shifted. Some of my closest mentors have passed away. And so, uh, but I've been blessed. I even now have one mentor who's 30 and one who's 20, so I have some millennial mentors that are teaching me how the younger generation thinks. So it's, it's a great gift, I tell you, if you want to figure out how a lot of this social media and all the things online works, you, you need a little help from somebody that understands it better than you do. So... Uh, and I've been blessed to have two, two support groups. We went a number of years ago in 1974, in the fall of 74, to uh, Curcio, sponsored then by the Episcopal Church. It's spread quite a bit since then. It originally came out of the Roman Catholic Church. It was a three-day experience in Christian love. And one of the things came out of it is a group of four of us decided, well, we want to form a small group to carry this on. So we did, February of 1975, 40 years ago this past February. And then we added four more people, and one person passed away, one person moved out of town, and we added a couple more. We haven't had any changes in the group for 20 years. And meet every Wednesday morning from 7.15 to 8.30. And one of the guys has his assistant put out a card at the start of the year about who's got the program, and everyone gets it for two weeks uh, for the entire year. And so we've met everyone. You won't believe that. And I'm the delinquent. I tried to resign from the group about 10 years ago. I started teaching at Harvard Business School but they wouldn't let me. So, But I guarantee you I go when I'm in town. But we have very meaningful discussions because someone puts the program together and starts. And sometimes we'll suspend the whole program. One person's wife is going through very, very difficult times right now with her health, and he just had to you know, suspend the program for the day and talk about her health. We also have a couples group uh, of eight of us that uh, meet once a month, and we also travel together. In fact, we just got back last week from a barge trip in France. And that's an opportunity for very intimate discussion. But it's also an opportunity when you're in difficult times for support. Uh, back in 1996, my wife was kind of at her peak. She had just gotten her doctorate mid-career, just turned 50. Things were going really well, and I was coming back from Israel. And I stopped in Zurich, gave her a call, and... As soon as, I, as soon as she started speaking, I could tell something was wrong. I said, what's wrong? She said, well, 
I had a bad mammogram today, and then they did another one, and then they did another one, and they wouldn't tell me what it was. I've got to go in tomorrow for a biopsy, but I know it's breast cancer. I'm just sure of it now. And I could see the way people look the other way in the hospital. They didn't want to look me in the eye. And uh, so she did have breast cancer. And I'll never forget, uh, she was at Abbott Northwestern Hospital. And we were, uh, she was up in a surgical suite up there. And the eight of us were, or seven of us, because Penny was obviously in the surgical suite while she was having her surgery, were all there supporting her. And I can tell you, having a group like that around meant a great deal to her and it meant a great deal to me. And so at one time or another, everyone in our group has gone through really rough times, health problems, problems with children, marital uh, problems, you know, I mean, just difficult times. And yet we've all been there to support each other. So who's your support team and who's there for you? And I think I really want to encourage you, to, if you don't have a support team, to really build it. Don't wait until you get in trouble because we'll all need it at some point in time. And you need people to have really in-depth discussions with, not just superficial social discussions, but really in-depth discussions. So I just want to, before I close, I want to tell you my story. I've been talking about other people's stories. And it's not very dramatic. There's nothing as dramatic as some of the people I've mentioned to you. Uh, but it's what's important to me. I was born in Michigan to older parents. My father was 43. My mother was 37. Uh, and uh, I'm an only child, and I think my father had all his hopes resting on me. And he used to say to me, son, he said, I'd like for you to, uh, I, he said, I thought he was a good, he was a consultant with Booz Allen. I thought he was a good consultant. He'd say, son, I failed as a leader. I'd like you to be the leader I never became. So he's telling me all this when I'm eight, nine years old. In fact, he even said, you know, you could be head of a major company. He said, son, I've held stock in this company in Atlanta, Georgia, for 30, since 1937, called the Coca-Cola Company, you could be head of that company, son. And he said, if that's not good enough, there's a company called Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati, another emerging little computer company out on the East Coast called IBM. Of course, I never heard of these companies. I'm a little boy. But he put it in my brain, somebody going to be some kind of great leader. So uh, I, as a person, young person in junior high and high school, I signed up for all the organizations. I joined every organization site. I was involved a lot in sports. I was involved in the organizations, but you know what? I was never chosen to lead anything. Uh, I was never Lexus Student Council. I was never head of an organization. Uh, I, was good, I was a good tennis player, good enough to play college tennis, yet I wouldn't even like to co-captain my tennis team my senior year. So finally, I said to heck with our senior year, we can actually nominate ourselves for office. So I ran against one other person who president of the senior class, and I was convinced I was a lot more effective, and he was better organized, more active. He was kind of passive. Well, when the votes came in, I lost by margin, two to one. So you can see the kids, the kids in my high school didn't think I was such a great leader. And uh, so I went off uh, to Georgia Tech. Now, if you ask me, why did I go to, I lived, grew up in Michigan, up in Michigan. Why did I go to Georgia Tech? I will tell you, it was a great engineering school, which is true. I will tell you, I could play tennis year-round because good, great weather. That's true, a lot better in Minnesota or Michigan. And I would tell you that, uh, you know, a lot of attractive women in Atlanta. But none of that's the real reason. The real reason I was trying to escape myself. I could have gone to Michigan. They have an outstanding engineering school. But I didn't want to. I went to a school where I didn't know one soul in the entire school. And what I hadn't learned is what my friend John Kabat-Zinn, who's coming here uh, in a couple of weeks, had, writes about. He said, wherever you go, there you are. You know, you can change venues, but you're the same person. And uh, I had changed uh, venues, uh, and, but I didn't change myself. 
and I made all the same mistakes all over again. So I got to Georgia Tech. I'm all excited about becoming a leader at Georgia Tech. Got a fresh start. No one knows me. I've got a really good opportunity. So Georgia Tech, I signed up for a lot of organizations. Just I had like high school, even more. There are more opportunities. I was involved in just about everything you could think of. You know what? Uh, I ran for office seven times, six times at Georgia Tech, and lost all six. So I'm now I'm 0 for seven. So. I'm not only not a leader, I'm a real loser. <laughs> and the best thing that ever happened to me is some seniors at Georgia Tech put me aside. And they said, Bill, no one's ever going to work with you, much less be led, to, led by you, because you're moving so fast to get ahead that you don't take time for other people. That was like a blow to the solar plexus, because I could see all my dreams going away. And you know what? They were right. They were absolutely right. It's more like I was building a resume than building a life, than building relationships. I even... Stopped. Uh, I went back, and after getting that feedback, I went, talked to a lot of people what I was doing wrong. I even stopped taking classes at 11 and 1 so I could sit around and have lunch with two different groups of people and really get to know people, start mentoring a lot of people and, uh, and letting people mentor me and uh, kind of a, my own, what I would call, self-help leadership development program. It was a painful time. I realized that they were right in all the things I wasn't, and it was one of the greatest learning experiences of my life. And so I was fortunate to hold a number of leadership positions there and when I went on to graduate business school. Uh, and so I came out of there. I went to work in the United States government, uh, young age of 23, 24 years old. And four months after I arrived working in the Department of Defense uh, as a civilian, uh, I got pulled out of a meeting uh, in one of the assistant secretary's office. And uh, my father was on the line. He could barely speak to tell me my mother had died that morning. And what I haven't told you, I was never close to my father because he traveled all the time, but I was very close to my mother uh, as an only child and with a father who traveled all the time. I found, it, found myself doing things a lot with my mother, and I never got a chance to say goodbye to her. So I was really down. I was really you know, devastated by her death and, uh, and the loss, and the fact I never had a chance to say goodbye to her. And, uh, but I eventually recovered from that, and uh, six, nine months later, I fell in love to, with a woman. We were living in Washington with a bunch of guys uh, from Macon, Georgia, who was living about two blocks away. And eventually, we got engaged to be married. We were set to be married, and it was August of 1968. And uh, I remember uh, she'd had some headaches, and I'd gone to church that morning, came back home. And I was living in a big old house uh, in Georgetown, and all the curtains were pulled. It was a beautiful, sunny Sunday, uh, Sunday sunny Sunday you know, 85 degrees, and it was, thought it was kind of odd, all the curtains were pulled. And I walked in, and one of my roommates asked me to come in and to tell me that my fiancé had died during the night of a malignant brain tumor. And I was just devastated because, uh, you know, uh, totally undiagnosed. It was a glioblastoma, which is incurable, but of course, you know, we didn't know that at the time until they later did an autopsy. But I could explain my mother's death, and many of you, I'm sure, have had parents who have passed away, as being in the natural order of things. But for a 25-year-old who was doing great work in the, with the Appalachia Regional Commission to just disappear one day was something my faith didn't have any explanations for. And, uh, and so, uh, but I did find that the conclusion I reached going through that experience and being able to share it with people I was very close to and friends came around me, uh, was that, you know, none of us knows how long we have to live. No one, 
And I think if we treat every day as being precious, not because we're looking at the end, but because every day is precious. Every day is a gift. And just to go back to myself and say, who am I reaching out and touching today and trying to impact their lives? But then I was still on this idea I'm going to be CEO of major corporation. I, uh, I went to work for Litton Industries, came here, founded the consumer microwave oven business for Litton Industries, started that, did that about nine years, fell in love with the community, Penny had a good job, so when the opportunity came to go to corporate headquarters in California, that's when I decided to move on. I went to Honeywell, uh, had the privilege of working for Honeywell for ten and a half years, uh, three great years in Brussels as president of Honeywell Europe, and then I came back, I got a two-step promotion, got called back early, and I was running all of a sudden a huge bureaucracy, nine divisions, three groups, and everyone said everything is fine except every one of those businesses was in trouble. And I found myself becoming Mr. Turnaround, laying off thousands of people, uh, chasing numbers all the time. I always loved being with customers and employees, and yet I found myself just chasing numbers. And uh, so I got, it took about three or four years to get this set of businesses right. And then I got the second set of businesses, and that was uh, industrial business. And that worked pretty quickly. We were able to get things on track in about 18 months. And I was given the third set, the aerospace and defense business, which has never been where my heart is. It's a fine business, but it wasn't where my heart was. And yet we uncovered a whole raft of overruns and cost overruns, and we had to take a write-off some $550 million. And, but we were on our way. And I got, one day I was driving home. It was a day like today, except it was a beautiful Sunday day. The leaves were turning. It was October of 1988. And I remember I was driving home. I should say immodestly that I was one of the leading candidates, if not the leading candidate, to be the next CEO of Honeywell. Um, my wife, Penny, had a very good job as a consulting psychologist. We had two sons, one in high school, one in junior high school. Been married about 16 years. And we had a lot of friends. We come back from Brussels. Our friends were still here. Life was good. And I looked at myself one day as I was driving around Lake of the Isles. And what did I see? A miserable person. Me. Now, you're going to ask, how can you be miserable? You seemingly have everything going for you. I was miserable because I was losing it. I, I didn't use the word true north in those days, but I was losing sight of my true north. I was running for CEO. You've seen it, I'm sure, people move, playing the corporate game, trying to get ahead. And I was running for CEO, and uh, you know, I was even changing the way I dressed, wearing cufflinks, which I don't wear, and uh, trying to impress things, hey, instead of being passionate, just being the right, saying just the right thing to the top management or the board of directors, playing the game, so to speak. Other people could see this. I couldn't see it. And I finally went home and told Penny what I was feeling. I was feeling miserable inside. She said, Bill, I've been trying to tell you this for a year. You just refuse to listen. <laughs> see, it's the person closest to you that sees you as you really are. And I had a lot of blind spots, and I was so blind I couldn't see my own blind spots, but she would tell me about them, and I'd oh, no, that's not true. But it was all true. And so I went to my men's group the next morning, and they said to me, yeah, we've seen some of these changes in you. Now, you've turned down Medtronic for a job three times. Why'd you do that? And uh, you'll hear the ego coming through here. You'll say, well, you know, I always thought I was going to be head of a really large company, and Medtronic's kind of a mid-sized company. So, uh, you know... Uh, and they said, why don't you give it a shot? So I did a lot of introspection, talked to a number of people about that, called Wynn Wallen, the then CEO back, wound up meeting with Earl Bach, and, and had the privilege of going to Honeywell. And I remember I walked in the door the very first day. All my meetings, interviews had been outside the building, so I'd never been inside the building. I walked in the building the first day, and I felt like I was coming home. 
coming home to a place I'd never been before. You know that kind of weird feeling you have when, wow, this is where I should be. This is a group of people that I can work with. I can learn. I didn't know anything about the medical business. I can learn a lot from them. And maybe I can organize and bring people together, and we can really make a difference. And I can tell you it's the best 13 years of my professional life. Uh, but if I, hadn't had, if I hadn't closed that door at Honeywell, I never would have opened the door to Medtronic. And I think that's the way sometimes life works. The same thing happening when I met my wife, Penny, uh, sometime after my fiancé died, that sometimes one door closes in life and another one's opened. And I just feel really blessed to having had that opportunity because walking through that door has opened up everything that's happened in my life since then. And it really has given me the opportunity to lead and now write about leadership, but in the ways that I really felt called to do and be myself. So that's my story, and I, uh, I wanted to share that with you tonight. Like I say, it's not dramatic as many, but it is who I am. And so I'd just like to close with asking you a little exercise. I'd like you to think about uh, the end of your life. Now, you don't want to think about that. You're 96 years old. You're on your deathbed. The good news, you live till 96. A lot of us right now would love to live to 96. The bad news is you've got three hours to live. And all your adult children have come in. Your grandchildren have come in from all over the world. And your favorite granddaughter looks up at you. And I'm thinking of my granddaughter, Dylan, who I'm going to see this weekend. She lives in Dallas, Texas. She was born in Switzerland, lived in Europe for seven and a half years. And she looks up and she, she calls me Papa Bill. She says, Papa Bill, what did you do to make a difference in the world? What are you going to do when your granddaughter, what are you going to tell your granddaughter when she asks you that question? Because the time to think about that is now. Don't wait. So you're on your deathbed. What are you doing to make a difference in the world? Robert F. Kennedy in 1966, shortly before he was assassinated, went to Johannesburg, South Africa. And he said something very profound. He said, few will have the greatness to bend history itself. Now, actually, he was sitting in the shadow of Nelson Mandela, who did bend history. I know I won't. Some of you may. But he went on to say, few will have the greatness to bend history itself, but each of us can commit ourselves to a series of actions to make this world a better place. And the sum total of all of our actions will write the history of this generation. So what commit actions are you prepared to commit yourself to to make this world a better place? Don't have to change the whole world. I find you can have the greatest impact on the people right around you to touch every single day whose lives you impact, or people maybe you meet once, but you had a small influence on them, and they come back to you 10 years later and said, you had a big influence on my life. So think about that. How are you having an impact? Margaret Mead, the famous anthropologist, said, never doubt the power of a small group of people to change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. I look at Opportunity International. I look at what Wendy Kopp has done at Teach for America. I look at what small groups of people have done to really impact the future of the world. So think about that, how you can have an impact on the world around you and use your life as a leader who can follow his or her true north, be true to what you believe throughout your life, let your faith guide you, have that deep sense of purpose, be the person that God called you to be, and use your gifts in a special way to make a difference in the world. Because when you leave this world, the only thing you can take with you is what you leave behind. Thank you very much.
going to let him uh, rest his voice for a second. And there is water here if you need it, by the way. Thank you. While I make just a couple of announcements, uh, thank you very much for your words, Bill. Uh, I always like to plug our next event, which in your programs you'll see is uh, Thursday, excuse me, November 5th, with uh, Dr. Angelo Volandes, who um, has a great book called The Conversation. Has anyone read the book, The Conversation, by any chance? Uh, so he'll be here talking about that. Um, if you'd like us to remind you about those kind of events, you can sign up for our e-news uh, on our website, or there's this little thing called Facebook. Uh, and as Bill says, if you don't know about that, talk to a millennial, um, <laughs> which you can also like, you can like us on, on Facebook. Uh, by the way, after I'm done with a few announcements, we're going to be giving you all a chance to ask Bill some questions. So be thinking about those. There's a mic there and a mic there. We'll take questions for 20, 25 minutes, something like that, when we're done with these. Um, I also like to always pause just to say thanks. A lot of people come together to make these events possible. Um, I'll start, first of all, by thanking a dear friend, Jeff Elstead, who is over there. Jeff has been at all but maybe two of these events from the very beginning. He's the one who plays the beautiful guitar before and after. Jeff, as always, thank you for your music. You may have noticed you didn't have to pay to come tonight, and that's thanks to the amazing generosity of all kinds of individuals and corporations who have, from the start, supported this series. They are listed, um, and I think we have a couple of omissions. I always hate to see that, so we'll get that right next time if you're sitting in there, out there thinking, but well, wait, I gave something. So uh, we'll get that right, but let me just thank a few of uh, the corporate sponsors. Cressa, uh, Jim, thank you, Thrivent Financial, uh, Community Crossroads, Sparky Abrasives, Rapid Packaging, Mastercraft, Jeff, thank you, uh, Productivity, Greg, I know you're not here tonight, but thank you, um, Mount Olivet I mentioned already, and we have some educational partners, McLaurin at the University of Minnesota and Luther Seminary, and then you see all of the individuals uh, listed uh, who make this possible, it makes it possible to invite speakers like Bill here, so that people in the community, and we have people who come from all over, from as far away as Winnipeg, as far away as Texas, uh, are able to come here at no cost. Many of those sponsors are here tonight. Would you please help me thank them? Um, and Bill has already thanked uh, Opportunity International, but uh, you know, pe- one of the questions I get more than just about any other question about the series is, well, how do you find your speakers? Um, and there isn't always a good story, but in the case of Bill, uh, it's one of these small world stories, and uh, St. Philip the Deacon now for f- the last four and a half, five years has partnered with this amazing organization called Opportunity International. Uh, Lori Olson, who is here tonight, has been a, a dear friend. I traveled with her to Columbia with a group from this church, and some other good friends of Opportunity were able to put us in touch with Bill. So um, if you're not familiar with OI, I invite you to, uh, to look them up. And, and Lori, again, thank you for all of your assistance in making tonight possible. Would you thank her and Opportunity for me? Um, most of our events, final thing I'll say is uh, our speakers have books available for sale. You may have noticed you got one for free tonight. Don't get used to that. Uh, if you didn't get one, though, please pick one up uh, in the narthex, the lobby out, outside, and Bill will be around as long as necessary, I'm sure, to s- inscribe them uh, for you if you'd like. So again, pick one up and make sure to have him inscribe one uh, after we're done. Okay, 
We're going to take some questions now, so please be brave. Uh, again, Mike here and here. And do we have someone at the soundboard, by the way? You can make sure that those are on, um, either Scott or Clay. Oh, it is on. Okay, good. My only claim to fame is, is I had the Jaguar convertible with the lights on. <laughs> and, the, and the good news is I've shot him off. The bad news is there's nothing you can do about it. Okay. <laughs> One question. It's often said that uh, it's easy to be a, a leader in this world because there's so little competition. I would like to have you comment on that. There's so little common. There's so little competition to be a leader. Well, you know, leadership has gotten a bad rap. When I was back in my days as CEO, I can tell you leaders were viewed as heroes. And it's been a rough call. Other than the military and the, uh, the, the ministry is about the only heroes we look at today, uh, which I think is, is a tragedy. Uh, I will not comment on political leaders. I haven't studied it. I privately am horrified by a lot of what I see going on. But, uh, and I'm not sure that if you follow the ideas that I have, you could be elected to political office by being totally honest and open. But I do think today's group of business leaders that have come on, particularly since the financial crisis, since 2008 and 2009, uh, learned from the mistakes of their predecessors. Uh, and I actually, in spite of some setbacks with United Airlines and Volkswagen and uh, uh, Toshi or, yeah, Toshiba, I think we have an outstanding group of leaders in for-profit organizations, non-profit organizations, community organizations, in the medical field. So I would say today's leaders, for all the bad rap they get from the media, we really have an extraordinary group of leaders. I'd be happy to name a couple of dozen in this community if you want, because we have the best leaders in this community we've ever had. And I've been here for 40 years, 45 years, since 1970. I'm not a native. I wish I were, but I'm not. And... Uh, but I can tell you in the 45 years I've been here, we've never had such an outstanding group of leaders. Maybe if you go back to the greatest generation, they were equally good. I wasn't around. Sometimes to glorify the past more. But today's leaders uh, are really extraordinary of our corporations, of our nonprofits, of our medical organizations, of our, we don't have as many military organizations here, our ministry, ministry leaders. So we're really blessed with outstanding leaders. So I'm feeling very good about what we have, and I have gotten to know most of the leaders in the Twin Cities. And uh, I would say that on a national basis that uh, the Twin Cities really sets a standard for the rest of the country. I wrote an article about this in the business community. Uh, I remember my friend John Whitehead, who was chairman of Goldman Sachs, who was kind of the dean of the financial community during his lifetime. He died last year at 90. Uh, he was consulted by uh, somebody here that said, uh, we want to bring some outstanding leaders here uh, can you tell us where they are? And he said, they're all in your community. And uh, so we've had, we've, we're blessed now an even better generation of leaders. They're going to hit tough times. I mean, Ken Powell, General Mills, an outstanding leader, but he's hitting a rough time. You know, all of us have to go through difficult times. But I think we see a group of people that have a sense of purpose and are really committed to the people in their organizations. And I hope that the Twins could be a role model for the rest of the nation. So thank you for your question. You talked about the journey from I to we and how important it is in our country. Um, politically, can you give us your feelings about some ideas that will help us to move from I to we instead of extreme right and left? Yeah, I wish I could. I, I, I can tell you I'm extremely discouraged about this. Uh, I think we're split as a nation, and we're split around the wrong things. 
And I think we're having trouble accepting the reality of what we are as a nation today. Uh, you know, we're a nation of immigrants. I bet every, maybe a couple of Native Americans in the audience, but every one of you, if you trace your genealogy back. Now, it took me to 1724 to get my father's family out of the country and only in 1876 to find my grandfather to come over here on the boat from the Netherlands. But, you know, we need to embrace what we are as a nation today. This is the greatest nation on earth, but in many ways it's our diversity that's made us great, our acceptance of other people who are different than we are. And I remember how much this community has, I know I've seen this community change in the 45 years we've been here and how diverse it is today and the richness that that's bringing. Just go to the farmer's market if you don't believe me, okay? You see the employees at Medtronic today. When I went there, it was what you would call white bread, right? You all understand what I'm saying? And it was, uh, in fact, everyone was blonde in those days because they're all Norwegian or Swedes by heritage. But today, it's an extremely diverse place. And I think that's a good thing. You know, the CEO of Medtronic, Omar Ishrak, is a, uh, was born in Bangladesh, you know? You know, here's a company that was pretty much a Christian company when we went there. And I can tell you, Omar is as good as they come. He's, he's a devout Muslim. He goes to Mecca and does what's called a Hajj. He does a pilgrimage there. And so that level of diversity has helped our, our... And I think... I don't know what to do to solve the political problem. I think we're going to be stalemated for some... Regardless who's elected the next president, I think we'll be stalemated for some period of time. So my... And this is not... I'm not proud to say this, but my solution is I think you're going to see a lot of power devolved to the states and to the metropolitan areas and to communities. And, and that's not altogether bad because we're so diverse as a country, it's hard to solve all the problems with one size fits all. That's true of healthcare. We have probably the greatest healthcare system. I do serve on the board of Mayo. I was chairman of the board of Alina at one time, but we probably have the greatest healthcare system of anyone, any state and nation. Boston, Massachusetts may be a good competitor, but, uh, but we're blessed in that way. And uh, I think we need to build up our institutions here locally. But I'm not sure that you can solve the health care problems, which my wife has devoted her whole self to, with one-size-fits-all national solutions. Same with education. And so I'm not sure. I think if we take, my message to you is, let's do what we can in our own neighborhoods, our own communities, our own organizations, our own corporations, our own nonprofits, our own community, our own churches, and make a difference. And we can spread that out, as you're doing through Opportunity International. We can spread that out. But let's, take, let's do it right here. I would actually encourage you to spend your time and your treasure there rather than trying to change what's going on in Washington because uh, I don't have a lot of... I, that's a terrible thing to say as a uh, committed American. But I think that's the reality. And so I think the reality we're facing today is we can make a lot better, bigger difference ourselves here rather than watching debates to go out and work in a soup kitchen or, you know, go out and raise some money for a charitable organization you care about, like United Way or whatever it is, or do work for your church where you can make a difference to people that are impoverished to bring them in, make their lives different. So uh, that's probably not the answer you wanted to hear, but that's what I feel. So thank you for being understanding. Yes? My claim to fame is my oldest daughter was on Shark Tank. All right. <laughs> and they're filming for Beyond the Tank. And I'm so proud because I have four children. They're all entrepreneurs. And I was talking to the people behind me. And when people say, what do you do? And instead of saying, I'm just a housewife, I'm a steward of God's most precious resources, children. Great. And they give back. And she's opened uh, five orphanages in India. 
that house 50 kids each, and they're getting girls out of sex trade. They're just giving a lot of money back and helping. So my question to you is how many mentors do you have, and how many people are you mentors to? Well, I am... Uh... This is an honest statement. I have some wonderful mentors. I had one uh, who was 18 years older than I was, Warren Bennis, who died a year and a half ago. I have a mentor who's my age, David Gurrigan, and another one, Noria, who's the dean of Harvard Business School, is 18 years younger than I am. So I don't think it's an age-related thing, but these are very wise people. Just the other night, uh, I was getting counsel from Noria uh, about some challenges I'm facing, you know, uh, and he was just wonderfully insightful. Uh, in fact, there's a guy that's got it. To tell you full disclosure, there's a guy that's a book out now, and first time in my life I've ever been attacked in writing, and uh, at least, and, you know, not, and uh, it, he's saying some things that are untrue, but he's this a person that's actually advocating lying because all leaders do it, and narcissists, he said the best leaders are all narcissistic. He says the exact opposite of everything I read in the book, so you can go read his book to get a contrast. So how should I deal with this? And the advice was just walk past it and ignore it, just like I told Aretha Clark King. Don't get sucked into that kind of debate. Okay, I don't believe these things. I believe what I told you. And uh, uh, I have the privilege of mentoring a lot of people right now. This is kind of a silent thing. I'm mentoring about two dozen CEOs of major corporations around the, around the world, around the country, some around the world. It's not a public kind of thing. I never take money for this kind of thing. It's just a, a mentoring experience. And, uh, and I have a lot of young people I'm mentoring. I told you I had some young mentors, one of who's 30, one of who's 20, are teaching me about the millennial generation. But I have a lot of people I'm mentoring on a regular basis. One of them called me up today, just gone through a really severe crucible. A lot of these are former students, so the, the number is quite large. Um, I let them contact me because I don't want to chase them, but uh, I do think mentoring is very important. It is a two-way street. And every relationship is two ways. So I don't believe that you're just, you know, a mentor is just giving to the mentee. It's a two-way street. I'm learning for them. Hopefully they're learning for me. And, uh, and we can, you know, uh, you need to have wisdom and counsel, and it's good to have someone you can talk to. So thanks for your question. Other questions? No one else? Okay. You sure? Okay. If anyone doesn't want to get up in public, I'll be glad to well, take any questions afterward. So he'll uh, he, he'll be in the back again if you want to visit with him and ask a question face to face. But before we let him go, we always have a small gift for our speakers. Um, and again, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, and what I have here is a little granite plaque, and it says simply, uh, "With thanks to Bill George for bringing faith to life." Oh, wow. So thank you very much. Time. That's wonderful. Thank you. Lovely. Really nice. Thank you.